0: Hello, I'm Terence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Vise Institute of Biologically Inspired Engineering. The mission of the Vise Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds, with a focus on technology development and its translation into products and therapies that will have an impact on the world in which we live. The Vise is not interested in making incremental improvements to existing materials and devices, but in shifting paradigms. Today's episode of Disruptive, Synthetic Biology. We have within our grasp the technology to change evolution. This could change the course of biological life. Those are the words of Paul Berg, Nobel laureate and a pioneer of genetic engineering. What sorts of breakthroughs are possible by modifying an organism's genome, something we're now able to do ever more cheaply and efficiently? The basic idea behind synthetic biology according to one of today's guests, George Church, is that natural organisms can be reprogrammed to do things they wouldn't normally do, things that might be useful to people. Researchers have learned not only how to read an organism's genetic code, but also how to write and insert new code into that organism. Did you know that we're already able to program microbes to treat wastewater, generate electricity, manufacture jet fuel, create hemoglobin, and fabricate new drugs? What sounds like science fiction to most of us might be a reality within our lifetimes, the ability to build diagnostic tools that live within our bodies, or treatments to eradicate malaria from mosquito lines, or possibly even to make genetic improvements in humans that are passed down to future generations. These can be game changers. In pursuit of these high-impact benefits, what sort of risks are we looking at? Will there be unintended consequences to humankind or to our ecosystem? When will we know the effects as they play out over generations? This conversation about the promise and the risks of synthetic biology has come to a head recently with the publication of two public letters. The first, signed by a small group of prominent researchers posted on March 13th in the journal Nature. The second, signed by 18 leaders in the field, most of whom had gathered in Napa, California, to come up with a path forward, posted March 19th to the journal Science. The Napa group wrote of unparalleled potential for modifying human and non-human genomes to cure genetic diseases in humans and to reshape the biosphere for the environment and human societies. And they warned of unknown risks to human health and well-being. Bottom line. How do we make this work so that humanity enjoys the benefits of the breakthroughs without suffering unintended negative consequences? And what do we need to do now to move in that direction? We'll explore these questions with Pam Silver and George Church, one of the signers of the Napa Group letter. Among the many positions and titles they hold, both are founding members of the Wyss Institute. Pamela Silver, professor of systems biology at Harvard Medical School, received her B.S. in chemistry and Ph.D. in biochemistry From the University of California and did postdoctoral work at Harvard. Pamela is building cell-based machines, designing novel therapeutics, and re-engineering photosynthetic bacteria to produce hydrogen and other fuels. She's won many awards and grants, and serves on a number of private and public advisory boards. Most recently, she was recognized with a large award from the Department of Energy to develop electrofuels. Welcome, Pam Silver, to Disruptive. Hi, Terry. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'd like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about, Pam. So can you take us back and tell us a bit about your path to the work that you do today? And feel free to mention mentors, turning points, moments of decision.
1: (laughs) Sure. I love to talk about myself. (laughs) Uh, And this could take the whole hour, by the way. Uh, Let me begin by saying that I um, actually grew up in California in the Silicon Valley area during the birth of the personal computer, and my family was intimately involved in that. My best friend's father ran one of the biggest computer companies. So science and engineering were heavily encouraged in that environment. I actually had precocious math ability as a girl, which was considered unusual at the time. I think I actually became the subject of someone's PhD thesis at Stanford because of this. And I won the IBM math contest. (laughs) And the prize was a slide rule. (laughs) one knows what that is anymore. Actually,
0: Pam, I love the fact that I used to sort of feel intimidated by the folks who had slide rules in high school. And (laughs) when I realized that that they had become obsolete, it was like a sense of personal triumph.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they became obsolete in part because of my best friend's father, who was one of the inventors of the first calculator. And I remember once being at their house doing our he came homework and he came home and threw down the first programmable calculator and said, Here girls, try this. Wow. <laughs> so the environment was right for me in terms of innovation and being in the right place in the right time. I first started in math, migrated to physics, and realized at the time in physics that the choices were either to work on chaos theory or work on high energy physics. And the trouble with high energy was that you would have to work at an accelerator and you only got to do an experiment once a year if you were lucky. And then if the pen broke on the readout, you were screwed. So <laughs> so that was out because I really wanted to do experiments. And so I ended up migrating to chemistry. And then I think a, a key event for me was being sort of at the right place at the right time during the molecular biology revolution, which was just absolutely transformative. And I think looking back and looking at the history of synthetic biology, it is, of course, uh, the precursor of that is molecular biology, where we learned how to engineer single genes at a time. And molecular biology was very important in telling us that Biology was fundamentally modular, and that is one of the underpinnings of synthetic biology. What do I mean by that? So the gene was the original modular unit of biology. You could transfer a trait with a gene from one organism to another. What year is it that we believe this? Oh, well, this was the work of Mendel. You know, this goes back early 1900s. And it holds until... Well, then, once people like you mentioned, Paul Berg and others, were able to start cutting and pasting DNA of organisms, in particular bacteria at the time, it became evident that there was modularity that extended beyond the gene. So we could take parts of genes and move them to other genes, and they would function. So there's something called a promoter. You can move that promoter around, and it will regulate different genes. So that's the definition of modularity, being able to take something out of its natural context and move it somewhere else and have it function in the way it's supposed to. Let me preface that by saying that this goes back to what I consider the so-called founding of synthetic biology, which I was involved in here in Boston in about 2002, I got together with a group of computer scientists and bioengineers at MIT when we called ourselves the Synthetic Biology Working Group. And I was the token biologist. And the premise that they had was that biology should be as easy to engineer as it is to build a computer chip. And why isn't it? So that was the underlying premise. And then what led to this idea of employing modularity of biology is much the same as what an engineer does or an electrical engineer where they build a circuit and they use different parts to build that circuit on the chip and they know the characteristics of those parts, so they can predict how the chip will behave. This is how the computer industry works. Why is biology the best engineering material? Life can do a lot of things, and it can do it better than what engineers can often do, or it can do it in ways that are more compatible, say, with interface with ourselves or with the rest of nature. So one of those is this exquisite sensitivity of biology. I'll use as an example the olfaction system, your ability to smell. Your olfactory system can sense a single molecule. There's very little that can do that in real engineering. Uh, We already discussed the ability to use modules Much like electrical systems, biology is capable of sending and receiving signals. Of course, in the nervous system, this is standard, but there's also cell-cell communication that occurs in all parts of your body, in all parts of nature, between different bacteria in your gut. They're talking to each other. Um, What's that conversation about? We need to understand that, and once we can understand that, we can use it to engineer, for example, your gut. This is a project we're working on where we want to reboot your gut bacteria. And then lastly, of course, biology, unlike machines, can duplicate itself. Now, as synthetic biologists, part of our responsibility is to make sure that duplication is accurate doesn't cause mutation or things to go haywire, this is part of our responsibility to make sure that when we build these systems, they don't go wild, they don't go out of control, and they don't integrate into the natural world.
0: Yeah. In other words, the phenomenal opportunities that we face here, once we are able to tap into biology to work with us and for us, lays with it that responsibility.
1: Yes, but keep in mind that we have already been employing biology in our service for ages. For example, we engineer plants through evolution. We evolve them to have certain phenotypes or certain characteristics. We as humans have been evolving plants to do what we want, uh, grow with certain fertilizers, grow in more drought-like conditions grow in more crowded conditions, have better yield, be insect tolerant. So we've been doing this, and if you look at the original corn that Indians had, the corn we eat today looks completely different. So as humans, we've already been mucking around with nature. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. That was using evolution, but using it for our benefit. Now, we're just better at it. Right. We know
0: more, and we have uh, much more powerful computational tools to work with.
1: It is that about 50 years of molecular biology, which culminated in the sequencing of the human genome, and now what we really call citizen science, where essentially anyone can sequence anything, it's cheap enough to do DNA sequencing now of genomes, is one of the cheapest commodities you have in science and can be done on a benchtop. So now that we have all this information close at hand, we can employ that to start engineering organisms. And that was brought to us by this essentially 50 years of molecular biology. Mm -hmm. And so it's a wonderful deep history. Many of us were heavily engaged in that. And now to be able to see the fruit of that to think about this idea that we can use biology in a predictable, cheaper, and faster way to engineer it to do good is really the definition of synthetic biology, as you pointed out at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It is not about whether we can make whole new organisms. That's an approach to synthetic biology. The goals really are this faster, cheaper, more predictable engineering of biology for good.
0: On your website, you say, we seek to implement design strategies used by nature as well as to go where evolution may not readily go. Now, that's something which might make someone nervous. Could you say what you mean by that? Because I think it's pretty interesting.
1: So evolution, if you believe the standard theory, would be selection of the organisms that can thrive in a certain environment, right? And they do that simply, the others die and the the good ones grow. So, what you can do is apply artificial evolution. So, I could say, for example, I want to make a plant that can grow without hardly any water. So, I set up an experimental condition in the laboratory, and then I put lots of plants out there and I look for the guys that can grow. So, that's imitating a condition and allowing evolution to occur in the laboratory. You can also accelerate it in different ways by using the tools of molecular biology to help accelerate evolution. But that might not be a case where you would be able to find that drought-resistant plant out in nature.
0: So that's where you take a path nature is on already. You find things you've learned to actually accelerate the pace of evolution in a direction that you choose.
1: Not only that, You also can apply, so I used a real world example that might resonate for people, but you could also pick other unusual conditions that, like an unusual drug or something like that, that you really want organisms to be able to grow in the presence of where they normally don't. So you can apply in sort of an artificial evolutionary condition as well that might not be seen out in the real world, or you might anticipate Say you want to send things to Mars. Right. So you might anticipate, okay, here's what it's like on Mars. Can I evolve some organisms here on Earth that might live on Mars?
0: Now that we've defined some terms and laid out some history, can you talk a bit about what you're working on these days?
1: I can talk about the two that are the most exciting to my laboratory right now. Absolutely. Um, So the one I just mentioned was engineering the gut so that it can respond and possibly act as a therapeutic. So both a diagnostic and a therapeutic. So imagine, first of all, the real world problem. And I will take it to the human level for a moment. So here's a real world problem. If you have a chronic disease of the gut, so you're living, you're not going to die from it, but it's a chronic disease. You are in pain all the time for example, with Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease. What if you had a bacteria that was native to the gut but had been engineered so that when you have inflammation, it can sense that inflammation and then secrete or let something out of it that will treat that inflammation? So it's like a sentinel. It's, it's standing there in your gut, ready, mm-hmm. on alert for when something bad happens. And we can do this now, actually. This will be fairly short term. Another one, a huge cost to the military and to the world in general is traveler's diarrhea. In point of fact, when troops are deployed overseas, they're down for three to five days. And the cost to Mm. us, the taxpayers, is huge. Many people do not realize this. So imagine if you could create a therapeutic gut bacteria that would prevent traveler's diarrhea. So that's ongoing. That is research that is ongoing in our laboratory by trying to create artificial communities of bacteria that you could regulate on demand.
0: How far away is that?
1: If DARPA has its way, two and a half years.
0: The evolution of antibiotic-resistant microbes through the overuse and abuse of antibiotics could lead to the end of the antibiotics era that we take for granted. And I suffered a staph infection, a pretty severe staph Mm -hmm. infection, a couple of years ago. I take that threat seriously. You've engineered this natural gut bacteria we spoke about that can remember exposure to antibiotics in mice. How is that going to help us with this threat that we face?
1: Well, first of all, that system is highly modular. So I can make it respond not just to antibiotics, but to inflammation, to other drugs. So it's the perfect example of a synthetic circuit that's highly modular. So it's very useful. What it could do is help uh, reduce the amount of antibiotics that's being used because it can not only register whether you've been exposed to antibiotics or not but how much and it can also act as a counter and say for how long you've been exposed to those antibiotics so in that way it's it's acting as a probe as a as a diagnostic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but let me give you a another potential real world application that could happen now so as you know there's a big issue around use of antibiotics in the livestock industry mm-hmm. And perhaps this is impacting on our own health and our own resistance. So in the poultry industry, don't laugh, um, there's a lot of inflammation. That's a problem. And oftentimes they sample only a few chickens in the flock. So if you could use our bacteria in a contained environment to diagnose those chickens, you would know what's going on in the whole flock. And so that's a relatively cheap, fast way to engineer the poultry population without having to directly engineer every chicken. Right. And if I'm if I'm following you, right now, they just blanketly use a
0: lot of antibiotics for the fear that some of them might have problems, right? And what you're right. saying is
1: right. using right. It as a
0: diagnostic, you could selectively right. say, we don't right. need to give it to everyone. Right, right. You've set some very important goals for synthetic biology. One is to get beyond the dependency on petroleum, and the other is to design a sustainable earth. And I like both of those. Yes. And they're big, and they're enormously positive. How are you working toward those two goals right now in the
1: lab? Let me tell you about the bionic leaf. Yes. (laughs) I love the bionic leaf. This is the thing I am most excited about today. Good, And let me preface this story by saying this is a case where a wonderful collaborative effort. I met Dan Nocera, who used to be at MIT and is now here at Harvard in the chemistry department. I literally met him at a cocktail party. And he had just moved to Harvard. And he said, I've been wanting to meet you Uh because he had developed something called the artificial leaf. He's an inorganic chemist. He has developed a catalyst, essentially, that will act like a leaf it will do what's called the water-splitting reaction, and it will do it cheaply. So the water-splitting reaction generates hydrogen and oxygen. That's the front end. So you've got a solar panel hooked up to his magic artificial leaf. What do you do with that? So it's the age-old problem of how do you store solar energy. Now, Dan's original concept of this, and I was interested in this as well, is a hydrogen-based economy. Mm -hmm. Now, that comes and goes in terms of popularity. Hydrogen, by the way, is a clean-burning fuel, so it has that advantage. But he was sort of stuck with, okay, now I've got something that makes hydrogen, what do I do with it? Okay, so there's some hydrogen-based cars, but at the time, DOE was pushing the electrical car. so what are you going to do with this thing? So we said, well, look, there are bacteria that can live on hydrogen. They eat hydrogen. They All they need is CO2 and hydrogen. And so we then interfaced these bacteria together with the artificial leaf so that the bacteria live in the presence of the artificial leaf, and they make stuff. In this case, a, a pseudo-fuel. So this is a way of taking sunlight and converting it into biological carbon. It's a drop-in That means you can just essentially put it in water. It could be used in the developing world. It can be scaled up. We also call it the bionic leaf because it's the interface between the inorganic and the living system that
0: has been engineered. And one of the things that you point out about this is that just in the same way that nature has decentralized local energy, uh, once we deploy this technology, we can also look toward local decentralized energy right. rather right. than depending right. on massive, powerful companies with grids.
1: When I was working on this early on uh, several years ago, I I owned the domain name personalized energy because I, that's how I, I wanted to think about it that way that you would, for example, grow a bunch of bacteria on your roof and they would make stuff for you. <laughs> So that's how I Dan and I think about it, is this idea that—and in a way, people who have solar panels are already doing this. They're already decentralizing, even though in some cases they're selling it back to the grid. But imagine if you could use that to drive production in your own home of either energy or make your own uh, commodities. You need a certain drug. What if you had the bacteria programmed to make a drug— I mean, this is getting, you know, way out there in the future, but this gives you the front end to do that.
0: Photosynthesis is, none of us would be here without it, Uh, that when I've looked into all this, that photosynthesis is the only free lunch there is. Sunlight comes and photosynthesis, you know, converts it and suddenly we have things happening. When you begin to tap into that power uh, and that ability, that is really enormous.
1: Well, this is why I've called the engineering of the photosynthetic machinery, I think it should be a grand challenge. Because right now, as you know, plants are the least efficient at harvesting sunlight. It's about 1% or so. Uh, Photosynthetic bacteria get a little better and algae, I think, hit the peak at 5%. Actually, there may be some bacteria that can get up to 8%. Our leaf as of right now, is doing about 5%, which makes it equivalent to algae, which is huge. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but... We're doing better than a real leaf, and we're doing almost as good as the best thing on Earth. Right. Well, Dan,
0: I have a quote from Dan here, and I've seen him make mm-hmm. a presentation on this, which which is one thing that got me interested in all of this. He says, there's been 2.6 billion years of evolution, and Pam and I, working together a year and a half, have already achieved the efficiency of photosynthesis. Thanks, Dan.
1: <laughs> well, the evolution is an interesting question in and of itself, which I don't want to get too close to because many people have different opinions on it. But going back to your thing about evolving organisms synthetically, there's another way to think about this problem. So we have engineered something that is potentially scalable and more efficient and has the potential to be better. But what if we go back to life and say, can we now make living photosynthesis better? And I still think that should be a grand challenge.
0: Are there unique challenges to the field of synthetic biology? You've made the point a few times to do things for good so that things don't get loose in the wild and so on. I would think predictive, ethical, political, cultural, some of the challenges that synthetic biology faces. Could you speak a bit about that?
1: A little bit. To be honest, um, So I've been very impressed with the community in that it has caught the fascination of not just engineers and scientists, but also ethicists and policy people. And so the community has sort of grown together. And we have a lot of people thinking about ethics and policy. I think MIT may even almost have a department of it. And, <laughs> um, and that's a great thing because I'm not a policy person, although I just got back from the White House, but, and I'm learning more about it, but I'm a scientist. And I like the idea that there's this community that I can go talk to and learn more about what these issues are and what real people think about. So I think that's one way that some of these challenges are being addressed. It's also being addressed by the press quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, which is a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. <laughs> um, but again, the discussion is quite open. And I think it's caught the fascinate. certainly caught the fascination of young people. I have more students that want to work in my laboratory than I had when I worked on cancer. And this this has just caught the imagination, probably much in the way that the IT industry catches the imagination of young people. I think synthetic biology has also caught their imagination. And we should not lose that over issues of policy or issues of fear. We should somehow understand how to nurture that.
0: Let's talk a bit about the fear. You've been working in this arena for quite a while. When you're looking at experiments and research, how do you deal with the possibility that something could go wrong?
1: Well, for the most of... I would say for most of my scientific career, I worked on laboratory organisms that are contained and are not pathogens. And and the recombinant DNA aspect had been already dealt with with the Asilomar meeting in the early days, and there was a moratorium in Cambridge. And Asilomar was back in 75. Yeah, that was the mid-70s. Yeah. And to be clear... That was the product of scientists talking about the dangers of release. They did not talk about uh, malicious behavior. They did not talk about biowarfare. They simply addressed the issues of release. So if I can can say involving no bad actors, it's just even doing
0: our best, could something go wrong?
1: Right. What came out of Asilomar were the biosafety rules, which we still live by. So we have... Carefully controlled facilities. If I want to, I've worked on HIV. There's a biosafety containment lab here at Harvard where we can work on HIV. So this is the mechanism that we've lived with, and it's worked. The data is there. It's worked. However, now that we are starting to do things, so you asked about me, me personally. Yeah, I bought into in general recombinant DNA is safe based on the many years of experience and and the biosafety rules. However, moving forward, as we start to explore, this ability to sequence anything is powerful. Mm -hmm. And the ability to potentially manipulate anything is powerful. So as we move forward, we start to get into the realm of organisms that we don't normally handle. And we don't even know if they can be pathogenic or not. Uh, So, for example, if we're working with the gut microbiome, there may be organisms in someone's gut that could be bad for someone else, right? Sure. And so this is where I pay attention uh, to my students and that they are actually following the rules for containment. It's not a game. How would you define responsible conduct? And is that something that is
0: only up to one, or is that part of a partnership and a collaborative sort of nature of responsibility?
1: Well, so I think it's like everything. First of all, there's personal responsibility. You have a personal responsibility to protect yourself and to protect your neighbors, in this case, in the laboratory, and to be open about what you're doing. So... I think there's a need for openness about the research you're doing, not just to your neighbors, but to all the people around you. And we should have more open sharing of what people are doing. Then there's this issue of citizen science, um, where people are going to start experimenting on themselves and or obtaining their own genomes and thinking about that. And so I think that's where we need, and I hate to sound... (laughs) I hate to sound trivial, but we really just need more science education. Mm. The infamous Larry Summers said, I don't want anyone to leave Harvard without knowing the difference between a gene and a chromosome. And I don't know if that ever came to be true, but if this is the technology of the future, which I believe, or it's the technology of now, then I think people need a little more educated in it they don't have to know everything but they should be more educated if you
0: had a final words to listeners who've tuned into this podcast uh, what might that be in terms of both you know what they might be looking for what they might be thinking about etc
1: simply put biology is the technology of this century it's not silicon it's biology okay thank you very much pam thank you
0: you're listening to disruptive synthetic biology I'm Terence McNally, and I've been speaking with Pam Silver. We'll be back in just a moment with another founding member of Harvard's Wyss Institute, George Church. Welcome back. I'm Terence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute of Biologically Inspired Engineering. On this episode of Disruptive, we're discussing the enormous promise as well as the potential risks of synthetic biology. You're about to meet George Church, another founding core faculty member of the Wyss Institute. George Church is professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, professor of health sciences and technology at Harvard and MIT, and a director of personalgenomes.org. Church is director of the NIH Center for Excellence in Genomic Science and has co-founded at least 13 companies. He earned a bachelor's degree from Duke University in two years and a Ph.D. from Harvard. Honors include election to the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Engineering. He's co-authored hundreds of scientific papers, 60 patents, and the book Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. Welcome, George Church, to Disruptive. Uh, Thank you. Great to be here. So, George, I've highlighted some of your achievements, but can you take us back? Tell us a bit about the way you see your path to the work you do today.
2: When I was a kid, I was interested in computers and uh, medicine. My father was a physician. Computers were really out of my capability, but I was interested in them. And I looked for ways to merge those two. And the first real good opportunity occurred in my second year and final year of college with Ho Kim, who was a crystallographer. And these two things came together. And then that was one of the few automated components of biology Uh, or chemistry for that matter. And it uh, inspired me to try to apply some of the concepts of of biophysics and automation to other parts of biology, including genomics and proteomics, when I later started up my lab.
0: I've read an interview where you talked about going back even further, George, when you talked about your visit to the New York World's Fair, and you were a kid from Tampa, Florida, I know. And what did that visit, that vision, inspire in you?
2: Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, that that was transformative for me, and I think I didn't really even realize it until uh, just a few years ago when I was reflecting, getting ready to go back to that site again for a, quote, family reunion soon. But uh, it was transformative in that I saw a world that was very different from the world in, in Florida. For that matter, it was different from anywhere else in the world. But I thought the future had arrived when, in fact, it was kind of a airsats uh vision into the future and they had uh, you know things like touch pads where you could draw things and then then a computer would print out a fabric of exactly what you drew instantly and there were robots that looked like uh, people like Abraham Lincoln and, and just as soon as I got back to Florida and realized that the revolution was not really there I think I sort of subconsciously said well if I need to make it I need to be part of making it become true because it seemed very attractive
0: and how old are you at that point
2: uh, I was 10 years old.
0: 10 years old. Yeah. And, but I mean, to some extent, that vision that if the future isn't going to come to me, I'll help create the future has really been something that's been a thread ever since. Isn't that true?
2: Absolutely. There's still things that I feel should have happened by now or, should, <laughs> or would be better off uh, if we at least cautiously explore them. And so, yeah, there's, there's quite a few things left on my bucket list.
0: Very good. Let me read one quote, which I found uh, wonderful when you spoke reference. that You said, very often as I wander through life, I'll get that old feeling that I've come back from the future and I'm living in the past and it's a really horrible feeling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, there's there's an element of that. Yeah. One other thing I've heard you say, it's all too easy to dismiss the future. People confuse what's impossible today with what's impossible tomorrow. Could you talk about that?
2: One of the things that I try to instill in our laboratory, which is clearly unusual uh, atmosphere, is that, uh, you know, many... Creative people think of ideas, but then they quickly say, oh, that's implausible, impossible, too expensive, and then they stop thinking about it. Well, I try to encourage people in my group to think about it a little bit longer, talk it with a few people, maybe do a, a really easy paper or real experiment before you completely drop it. And even then, put it on the shelf and bring it off the shelf from time to time to reexamine it, because if it's not really ruled out, then, then you should be considering it. And a lot of the creativity comes from having a lot of things that are partially working and a lot of things that you've never fully rejected available at your fingertips, and you put them together in new combinations. And the fear of failure is another thing we try to make that so that's not such a big deal as well. Not dismissing and being capable of failing quickly is, is a good thing.
0: And within your lifetime or even within your career, some of these time frames have shrunk enormously, right? Things that were considered decades off actually ended up, being years off or that sort of thing.
2: Right. An affordable genome. It was predicted to take maybe six decades to go from $3 billion to affordable, and it took more like six years. (laughs) Uh, And then that's genome reading. And then genome writing, we have a revolution that's measured in two years now called CRISPR. So six to two years is the new infinity.
0: (laughs) Yeah, You say we are poorly adapted to our current environment. What does that mean to you, and what questions does that raise for you? In a biological sense,
2: most species take a million years to speciate and become adapted to a new environment thoroughly. Even our upright stance, we still have back problems and and other consequences. But more recently than that, moving into cities, uh, just in the last century or two, we've gone from less than 3% of the population in cities to most of us, more than half of us in cities. And that's an incredibly high population density that normally is associated with stress and so forth. And then we've also changed into a sedentary nature. Instead of using like 12,000 calories a day, we're down around 2,000. It's what we should be eating. But then we're (laughs) completely surrounded by all kinds of really, really tasty food. While before, You know, you might have to chew on your food for several hours to get, a, you know, a few calories out of it. Um, now you can just shovel it in or slurp it in. And I think those three things, you know, living in cities, uh, sedentary life, and the food are, are just among uh, a few. of Other things are, you know, high speeds and uh, uh, physical speeds and intellectual speeds, toxins, and uh, just a whole variety of yeah. uh, new things that we're not ready for.
0: You reprogram natural organisms to do things they wouldn't normally do. How do you do that?
2: It has certain things in common with other fields of engineering, where you have a, you know, a discipline of a, a collection of parts that you trust and principles that can be used, safety engineering and uh, you know equations and so forth. But the main thing that's different from other fields of engineering is that we benefit from having a set of parts that came from all of time in terms of evolution. And, uh, you know, a vast amount of space and organisms involved. So we have these very highly tuned devices that do amazing things, uh, like DNA polymerases that copy DNA and act as a tiny motor, and all these atomically precise parts. So we have uh, the benefits of past evolution, plus we can do current-day evolution. So instead of in typical engineering, you might make one prototype for a bridge or a car in molecular biology, Uh, lab evolution, you can make trillions of prototypes, design them on the computer and build them fairly quickly, and then test them out. So that difference between one prototype and trillions is another big advantage of synthetic biology.
0: Based on your ambition, your vision, you want to see ideas translate into action, into products. What are some of the things that you're most proud of having been involved in and most excited about working on now? In terms of translation of
2: not just incremental uh, improvements, but of transformative uh, or sometimes positively disruptive uh, technologies. We've been involved in almost all of the so-called next-generation sequencing methods, new methods that have brought down the price of uh, the human genome and other genomes uh, by 10 million fold. Similarly, we've been working on many different ways of writing the genome, engineering uh, genomes of, of microorganisms as well as human cells since the 1980s, uh, the most recent one that we helped uh, bring into being as a technology and also improve the specificity is the CRISPR method that you mentioned, which seems to work in every organism. Other methods we have are restricted to to a particular organism, like uh, the MAGE method works well in E. coli, K-12. So each of those has been translated into some sort of commercial context, there are other things that are more uh, appropriately done in a nonprofit way, such as the Personal Genome Project, which is, allows us to gather together big data sets about individual people and share them broadly, uh, as is sort of the mandate that we have from the Precision Medicine Initiative and others. And then probably the gene drives will be something that will be best done in a nonprofit mode as well, so we can spread resistance to malaria uh, through mosquito populations.
0: So we've both mentioned CRISPR. Can you explain, so a listener can understand it, what that actually is? What you found that worked and then how it worked?
2: We and others have been working on various ways of doing genome engineering or genome editing, where you can change small or large parts of the genome as designed in the computer. Almost all of them involve enzymes from microorganisms, some are called recombinases, are so called nucleases. They're all site-specific, which means they either use a protein component, or in the case of CRISPR, an RNA component, to search through all six billion human base pairs, or a different number for other plants and animals and microbes, search through those six billion to find the one match and then either cleave or recombine at that particular uh, location. Uh, It's kind of like a human walking up randomly to every door of every person on the planet, maybe six billion different uh, doors randomly uh, until they find the right one, sometimes repeating oneself on doors that don't work. Anyway, so once it finds it, you can then replace it with a particular piece of DNA you want or delete the DNA that you've targeted. And this can be either passed along from cell to cell or from generation to generation or, in some cases, spread through entire populations of rapidly growing organisms.
0: And as you said, there have been various methods. This one, CRISPR, this discovery, is the thing that really brought the price and the speed down, right? Right. CRISPR is uh, probably distinguished in its
2: flexibility and hence ability to make it more precise than the previous ones, as well as its low cost and ease of use. So it used to be very challenging to make any genome editing tool customized for a particular task. Even one or two would be uh, challenging and expensive. Now we make hundreds of thousands of them to make libraries, uh, whole libraries of CRISPR targeting uh, basically every part of every gene of a genome.
0: Yeah. And could you tell us, you mentioned gene drives, could you tell us something about some of the work that's been done with gene drives in yeast and in
2: mosquitoes? Gene drives can be used for dealing with managing invasive species species, like rats and carp and plants. It can also be used for disease vectors, such as the mosquitoes that bear uh, malaria and dengue fever, ticks and fleas, and so on. But before we wanted to deploy this new technology the CRISPR combined with gene drives, uh, we wanted to make sure we had some safety mechanisms in place. And these include physical isolation, ecological, so that there's no breeding population outside of the lab, just outside the lab. And then thirdly, uh, molecular biological isolation, where we can separate the components of the gene drive so that even if one part gets out, it can't uh, affect the surrounding population. We tested that in almost all of those safety components in yeast and have just published uh, the results of that, showing that all these safety mechanisms that we had proposed on paper seem to work in a variety of different wild yeast strains, but physically contained in the lab. Now we're moving on to Anopheles, uh, which is one of the major carriers of malaria.
0: You talked about the amazing speed with which the prices decrease, the possibilities have expanded. You actually say in talking about the promise of biology, and I think when we say biology, we're saying using biological uh, organisms to do lots of things that we would have never thought, you contrast it with electronics and point out that biology is far outpacing Moore's Law. Can you talk about that?
2: Biology is outpacing Moore's Law by, you know, factors of five or so per year. It's doing that by essentially catching up with the miniaturization revolution of Moore's Law. It will probably continue beyond uh, where conventional silicon fabrication can go, which is limited by, you know, the resolution of the printing process mm-hmm. right now, while biology is intrinsically capable of printing atomically precise components at scale, at you know, sort of multi-meter scale. Uh, you know, you think of a tree as atomically precise when you look at it in detail, but it's gigantic, and biology can do that at very low costs and can replicate. So there's a number of advantages, the main one being that we're already working at atomically precise scale, which is uh, well beyond where Moore's Law would eventually like to go. You know, it's essentially biology is a nanotechnology that works already and is very appropriately matched for medical and agricultural interfaces as well.
0: And when we're talking about biology, what we're talking about is our ability to harness biology, right?
2: That's right. We're talking about synthetic biology and its exponential improvement in our capabilities
0: to program it. Can you talk a bit about the qualities and risks associated with synthetic biology versus natural biology? Some will say that society as a whole has gotten pretty bad at assessing risk, and you can cite the Wall Street subprime derivatives crash, the war in Iraq. Both were seemingly based on best-case scenarios. How do you assess risk?
2: Certainly, some of the f- financial and military risks that we've taken uh, seem unjustified uh, with hindsight, similarly for chemical, nuclear, and biological mistakes that have been, technological ones have been made in the past. I think that's why it's good to have discussions well in advance as soon as you see the technology coming, even if it never arrives, the, the conversation about its positive and negative potential consequences is Extraordinarily valuable, and you need to keep reassessing it. Not just after you made a decision, you can start looking at it again. I think anything that has the ability to spread, so that includes, you know, ideas, education, mm-hmm. you know, the World Wide Web, viruses, mosquitoes, and so forth. Those appropriately demand a higher scrutiny. It doesn't necessarily mean that they take longer to arrive in the marketplace. Maybe they require a larger number of eyes and brains on the topic and uh, a more careful set of tests that are done under well-controlled physical, ecological, and biological
0: containment. And I've heard you say that for you, engineering and building safety is your obsession. And how does that drive the questions you ask and influence your work? Our lab is fairly unusual, both in academia and in industry,
2: among other things, focusing on cost and safety costs so that you can get deployment to, in a more egalitarian way, and safety so that by the time it's deployed, it's been rigorously tested, and then continually retests as as you get to scale. At first, it doesn't seem like it could be sufficiently exciting to get (laughs) grants and graduate students involved, but if it's transformative enough and thoughtful, and it has philosophical as well as practical implications, you can justify several labs uh, working on those aspects of cost and
0: safety. And so what are some of the ways, we talked about it in terms of the yeast, where you supplemented uh, physical isolation, if you will, with metabolic isolation and genetic isolation and so on. What are some of the other ways that safety, as an initial question, influences what you're doing?
2: In the case of yeast, we're de-risking gene drives, which are intentionally to be delivered into the wild to eliminate malaria, essentially delivered into the wild for spread, as in the case of uh, malarial mosquitoes. There's another set that are intentionally put in the wild, but not for spread, like crops or animals. And then there's a set that is never supposed to go into the wild that's usually physically contained in fermenters or something like that, typically microorganisms. And for each of these, you have a slightly different strategy. For the ones that shouldn't escape, you might want to have something where there's protection for the laboratory to keeping viruses from coming into the laboratory and contaminating sometimes many millions of liters of expensive culture, and that might make the culture virus resistant. But virus resistance, multivir- resistance to all viruses, although it sounds desirable, it could give a laboratory strain one of the few ways that it could survive in the wild. Mm. Most laboratory strains, like let's say chickens uh, that would be good meat products, would not necessarily fly well and wouldn't survive in the wild. Uh, The same thing applies for microorganisms, unless they're multivirus-resistant. In that case, you want to have other forms of safety built in that genetically isolates it, so it can't exchange DNA, as many organisms do. And it's metabolically isolated in that it's completely dependent on a chemical that is made in the laboratory is not available in the wild. We call it biocontainment.
0: What are your opinions on whether there's a need to perform work with synthetic biology, some of the work we've been talking about, under scrutiny and transparency and formalized risk-based practices and procedures. Um, What's your thought about that in your own lab and in the field broadly? Yeah, I'm basically
2: in favor of additional scrutiny. I think regulations in general that have been thoughtfully developed with many groups on all sides giving feedback are not onerous. You can get your work done And make sure that multiple groups have, uh, because it's transparent, multiple groups can look at it from the outside and and try to imagine ways that could go wrong in ways that perhaps the the scientists doing the experiment, because they're so engaged, focused, and upbeat, uh, optimistic, (laughs) they may not see all the possible downsides. They may even push back a little bit when you bring it up. We try to do this internally in our own lab of thinking of how everything could go wrong. But it's still helpful to have the transparency and the shared databases and so forth so that people can, people and machines can look through them for potentially new risks uh, that should be discussed and possibly
0: paused in some rare occasions. And, and that's going to take us to the letters that I referred to in, in the opening the letter in nature and the letter in science. And so as we talked about CRISPR and how that in some ways is a game changer uh, because of the way it brings the price. And actually, I think it makes it possible for people of somewhat less, or labs of somewhat less sophistication to get into this uh, activity. So what happened in Napa? And I don't mean the specific negotiations or the politics that went on between people, but what was the vision? What was the concern? What was the goal? I was involved in the
2: science paper that reflected that meeting, There has been a recurring concern about manipulation of the human germline, meaning something that would leave a permanent impact on a family or on the entire human race. That goes back to the early days of test tube babies in the early 1970s and the common DNA debate, now uh, synthetic biology and CRISPR in particular being so easy, possibly applicable to human embryos or other germline experiments. I think the concerns tend to entangle uh, vague unknown unknowns with very concrete safety and efficacy issues. I feel that once the safety and efficacy issues are addressed, as they have to be for all new medical technologies, nothing is really exempt, including CRISPR. Once those are settled, then you get a situation like you have with in vitro fertilization, which was very anxiety-inducing in the 70s before there was an example of a test tube baby once the safety and efficacy issues were addressed in 1978 with the first baby born and then soon thereafter many others, then the argument dissipated and was put off until, basically until CRISPR came along. But it's still the same basic argument, which is, is it safe to alter the natural process of reproduction? And exactly what are we worried about? I think the main thing we're worried about is inducing in a young baby that can't give consent possibility of getting cancers
0: because of off-target effect of CRISPR. And by off-target, and could, you mean that you do it to do one activity within a gene, and it ends up affecting others that you didn't predict.
2: Or, or you maybe you predicted them, but it happens at a rate that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. That rate, that off-target rate, can be reduced. And there are a half dozen different ways of reducing that rate by empirical searches, by dosage of the uh, CRISPR machinery, by um, requiring two CRISPRs to be near one another and precise. Anyway, there's many ways of improving that, and we're kind of walking through them, and they'll probably be tested mostly in human somatic tissues, meaning adult or childhood tissues, or the germline of animals for agricultural reasons. And then once both of those off-targets have been proven to be acceptable, that is to say they don't cause cancers, then the conversation will focus much more sharply on what are examples of medical treatments that can only be achieved by CRISPR in the germline that cannot be achieved by any other medical intervention.
0: In an article in the Daily Beast, New DNA Tech, Creating Unicorns and Curing Cancer for Real, David Ewing Duncan makes this statement about NAPA and the science and the nature letters. The U.S. and the world should waste no time in getting creative with developing new processes for ensuring that CRISPR-Cas9 and other powerful molecular technologies are allowed to move forward if safe and restricted or shut down if they are not. Is that basically where you stand?
2: Yes. I mean, that's where I stand on, on all new medical technologies is you need to leave an avenue open for safety testing in something that is not impactful on the on real patients or populations. And you also need to promote things that are looking safe and effective and either shut down or move to a safer zone, things that that look like
0: they're having problems with safety. Now, we've sort of threaded through this safety, and kind of behind the safety concerns is fear. How do you deal with the public's fear of the unknown? I think the first step is
2: to not be dismissive. I am myself. I have fears uh, that are pretty well aligned to the public and then transmit to them all the ways that we go through de-risking a technology before it gets deployed into the wide world. Many people could benefit from seeing in more detail uh, the, the steps that are involved in research and final approval for clinical trials and how carefully and how small those steps are and all the checks and balances. So that's part of it. And a part of it is also uh, you know, talking about alternatives. This is risky, but the alternative is even riskier. You know, Kind of walking through all the, all the options we have in front of us.
0: In one interview, when you were asked how you were able to shift your focus, because you're involved in so many different things that to most of us, it looks like that would take all my focus and, and you bounce from one to the other. Your answer was, it's all one project. What is that project? And looking back from, you pick the year, 2030, 2040, 2050, what does that project look like? Well, the project is integration of
2: technologies, assessment of needs and safety, and to some extent looking at the possible futures. So if we look back from the future, uh, at a project is the future, uh, hopefully we'll see some on target uh, predictions and deliveries. So if you imagine multiple possible futures and as many of the negative and positives as you can, and engage a lot of other people to participate in this and constantly adjust course as you go forward, hopefully the future is basically always now.
0: <laughs> I like that. Thanks a lot, George. Oh, it was a pleasure. So again, you've been listening to Disruptive Synthetic Biology. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Pam Silver and George Church. To learn more, go to viss, Harvard.edu. You can sign up at the V site on iTunes or SoundCloud to have podcasts delivered to you. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Tolikas of the VEAS Institute, to J.C. in Production, and to you, our listeners. I look forward to being with you again soon. And finally, thank you to Pam Silver and George Church. Keep up the good work.